Good morning. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, if you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And we're going to not waste any time. We're going to jump in. So if you will and you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. We're looking at 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word, for the joy of gathering as your corporate body, for the joy of worship. And truly, Lord, we say alleluia. Praise you, for you are worthy. And I pray, Lord, that as we've all come here with diverse weeks and diverse experiences this week, that you would calm our hearts and minds, that we would be steady before you and still before you, that the penetrating word of God might do its surgery in our hearts, that it might equip us, it might edify us, it might convict us, it might challenge us, and it might grow us up into the likeness of Jesus. And we commit our lives for this holy purpose in your precious name. Amen. I've entitled this message, The Wonder of Following Jesus, and we continue on with our series of Beholding and Building, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've uh, understood kind of the direction we're headed, and it is my privilege this morning to deal with the topic of personal pursuit of Jesus, or what it looks like for the individual disciple to follow Jesus. And and what are the characteristics of a disciple in their pursuit of the king, of kings? This is kind of the direction we're headed this morning, and uh, it's a joy for me to kind of look at Luke chapter 5 with you because I thought it might be helpful for us, it certainly was for me, to, to go back to the beginning, to go back to, if you will, the genesis of discipleship as it pertains to the New Testament, to take a look at the lives of these early disciples who many of us are so familiar with, at least in name, and so familiar with the gospel narrative and their story and how Jesus takes these strange men, these, this mixed bunch, and kind of weaves them together and creates this core group of disciples that then, upon his resurrection and ascension, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turned the world upside down. Who are these men? What can we learn from them? Well, there's much that we can learn, and, uh, but I think it's helpful for us this morning as we are reorienting in this series around what it looks like to behold Christ and to build his church. And as such, 
we must deal with what it looks like not only corporately to do that, but what it looks like individually to do that. So that'll be the emphasis this morning. I remember when I was around 14 years old, my father and I were volunteering with, at the time, with the Appalachian Mountain Club. Some of you may be familiar with that organization. They're just a volunteer organization uh, in the Northeast devoted to preserving, of course, the Appalachian Trail. goes from Georgia all the way to Maine. And we were a part of a crew of people that at the time were working in Massachusetts uh, on Mount Wachusett, not too far from here. We were developing and essentially rebuilding the Pine Hill Trail, which is the steepest trail on the particular mountain. Wachusett's only about 1,000 feet. We were tasked with what seemed to be a good idea to the Appalachian Mountain Club to preserve this trail from erosion because it was built on ledge. It was very steep, about 1,000 feet of elevation and probably about a half a mile. It was eroding, and they wanted to preserve it. So they looked at us and said, well, maybe over the next 20 years, we can build a stone staircase from the bottom to the top. So I was a part of the initial project with my father to lay the groundwork for that staircase. Uh, I remember being in the woods with him on a particular day in May, and we had kind of figured out where we were going to begin this staircase. And we had to, of course, quarry all the rock for the staircase off the mountain itself. So we had winches, and we had rock bars, and we had about eight people including myself, we found this particular stone, you know, estimate probably around 1,500 pounds or more. It was big, huge, and this was going to be the cornerstone of this staircase. This was going to be the bedrock, the foundation, and we had to chisel out this hole kind of in an ice cream cone shape because as you set rock in New England, you got to watch out for the frost, so it had to have room to breathe. We chiseled out this hole, and it took about seven hours for eight men, I was a boy, to get this rock 100 feet from the woods to this spot in the trail that was going to be the anchor point for the staircase. Remember, when we set the rock, it just made this suction noise as it sealed to the mud, and we kind of girded it with rock. And we thought to ourselves, wow, this, is, this took all day to lay this one rock, and we got to build a staircase over the next how many years? It's going to go 1,000 feet. But we knew the central importance of this stone as setting the whole staircase. And in a real sense... I think as we talk about individual discipleship, what we're talking about is the character of the individual stones in the staircase that God is building through his corporate church, a staircase that is the highway to Zion, the city of God. So when we think about ourselves in light of the corporate body, and I use this analogy of this staircase to just simply stay, of of course, that Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the foundation, and we have built, many of us, our lives upon Christ, the foundation stone. But Christ is not stopping there. He's continuing to build. He's building a staircase. He's building his kingdom. He's building his church. And we are individuals in that staircase. We are, as Peter would say, living stones who have come to the chief cornerstone and are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Uh, offering up spiritual sacrifices. So if we can orient our thinking around this kind of analogy of being a living stone, and if we can think of ourselves as being part of the corporate body of Christ, as many of us already do think, then I think as we flesh out characteristics of individual pursuit of Christ, we are not divorcing it from the corporate vision that God is building his kingdom. But we're also looking at ourselves and saying, well, really, the staircase is only as good as the quality of the individual stones we're building. In other words, every building is only as good as the material that you use to build it. Now, of course, the cornerstone is none other than Christ. We can never be that. But the foundation, the walls of this house, 
and the structure going up that brings great glory to God, we must look at the quality of the materials, and that is us. We are those living stones. So as we think of that, and as we approach Luke chapter 5, I find this particular narrative, which is the most descriptive in all the Gospels of this initial call of Christ to Peter and John and James, who were fishing partners in this commercial enterprise, I find this narrative so riveting, and I want to look at and flesh out for us this morning seven characteristics of what I would look at and say, this is what a disciple is. Seven characteristics of discipleship that will weave together to form the basic understanding of our pursuit of Christ. Now, I'm well aware that for many of you who have been so well taught in this church, um, this is not primarily going to be new information for you. I do hope it to be a reminder that stirs us up. For some of you, this may be radically new. For all in between, I pray that the Lord will speak to us this morning as we flesh out what it is, again, to be a disciple who makes disciples. So again, looking at our text, we see, of course, in verse 1, that on one occasion it says, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, meaning Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. It goes by different names in the New Testament. Uh, And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So here we have this scene developing. Jesus is by the lake uh, or the Sea of Galilee. He's preaching the crowds at this point. He's really just begun his ministry. But the crowds are just swarming upon Jesus. He's not like the other rabbis. He's preaching with authority. And they're just pressing in on him. So Jesus is kind of on the edge of the water. You can kind of envision it with your mind is recognizing he needs kind of a, some space to uh, be able to speak to the crowds for his voice to carry, uh, but to kind of get some distance, kind of like we have here with the pulpit. So he, he sees these two empty boats. Of course, it's fishing boats. Of course, he knows whose boats they are. And he kind of just drops this question on Peter that we're going to get to in a minute, um, asking him to shove out a little ways from the land. So it seems pretty straightforward, right? Jesus is in his boat, and he's pushed out, and he's preaching. But one of the first things that we see here as we encounter this narrative is is this distinction that's developing, that's about to be made between crowds or hearers of the Word of God and disciples who are doers of the Word of God, okay? So we have crowds. Crowds populate a lot of the narrative in the New Testament. Crowds are very fickle. Crowds are... uh, not very reliable. In one sense, a crowd will cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, to God in the highest, and then the next chapter will say, crucify him. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he was surrounded by crowds. And crowds are not inherently bad. They come with the territory. But as you see, Jesus does not spend the majority of his energy dealing with the crowds. He was dealing with his disciples. But those disciples had not yet been called to him. So what we see here developing is quite simply a delineation in the ministry of Christ between the crowds and his disciples. And what we see developing within that delineation is this idea that the crowds were eager to hear what Jesus had to say. Of course, it even says here, Luke says, they were eager to hear the word of God. So these crowds were full of a mixed bag of individuals people that were eager to hear what the Lord had to say, people that were curious what this new teaching was, curious who, who this rabbi was. Uh, there was. There was this intrigue. There was this kind of um, buildup of excitement around the potential that uh, 
you know, he was not teaching like their scribes. So there's this real hunger in the audience, but yet, as you will find out, many of them would go on their way once Jesus finished speaking. And Jesus would turn and direct his speech to Peter. And at that moment of time, Jesus gets personal and he gets intimate with a man and he calls a man to himself. And that is essentially the beginnings of discipleship. When Jesus enters your life, breaks into your world, and kind of pulls you from the crowd and says, I have called you to myself. Jesus does the pursuing. Jesus steps into your boat. Jesus invades your space. And he calls you to himself. And many times we think, well, we kind of chose Jesus. You know, we kind of chose this radical lifestyle of discipleship. No, God chose us, called us to himself. And, and if you have been graced with that call of God on your life, then know that God is calling you away from the crowd mentality into a discipleship mentality. And that distinction is fundamentally this. Disciples are not just hearers. They are doers of the word of God. May Jesus find us like he found his first disciples, not just hanging out with the crowd, but willing to do the things he says, willing to follow him at his word. Now, Jesus has compassion on the crowds. He teaches them. It says often Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus primarily dealt with around 12 men and a handful of women during most of his ministry. That's who he invested in. That's who he poured into. And this was the culture that Jesus developed, and it's modeled for us all throughout the Gospels. But we see this delineation being made here at the Sea of Galilee between the crowds out there and the disciples that Jesus is drawing to himself. And, and I believe many in this room are in the second category, disciples. Many of you, I know personally, you are disciples. And some of you, maybe this is new language for you or a new thought process to consider that we're not just a part of this crowd here on a Sunday morning, but we're actually individually being called by Christ to go deeper, to be disciples. So we see this first principle, disciples are not hearers only, but doers of the word of God. And as we, I've already insinuated on there in verse 3, Jesus sees these empty boats, two boats, and of course the fishermen were washing their nets, and he gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. I love this. The second principle we see in discipleship, and you'll understand this well if you're a disciple. Discipleship is being willing to make Jesus the Lord of your boat, not just a passenger. Sometimes in our lives, we, we like Jesus as a passenger. We want him in the boat. We just don't want him calling the shots. We like Jesus kind of coasting with us. We want him as a sidekick. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants all authority because he has all authority. Jesus wants all your life, not just part of your life. And in the metaphor of the boat, if the boat is descriptive of your life, your enterprise, your, your way, Jesus wants to be in charge of your boat. And what he does with Simon is he puts this on display. As he gets in Simon's boat. Now, I have to think to myself, reading between the lines, and I think it gets fleshed out better as we go along. I don't know how Simon felt about that. This is his business. This is his boat. He's going to describe how he's already been out all night fishing, doing what was already a very arduous job to begin with, had just probably finished washing his nets. And this, this, this guy, this rabbi, doesn't know who he is yet, 
steps into his boat and, and kind of drops a question, push out a little bit. In, in the language of the text, it doesn't really imply that Jesus really gave him another option. He just got in his boat and said, I need a little bit of space from the crowd. So Jesus kind of, um, Peter, excuse me, probably, I have a vision of Peter, and, you know, just bear with me, that he's probably under his breath, not too pleased. Here's this guy, like, I'm ready to go home, ready to call it a day. And, and this is tension is building in the narrative of Peter's individual reaction to Christ. Now, we see that he does it, and that begins to unveil this other side of Peter, this side of Peter that I pray is in each of us, that does what Jesus says, even if he doesn't like it. And this is kind of the inklings of how Jesus is pulling Peter in, where he, he kind of drops this initial question, just put out a little bit. I'm going to get in your boat, push, push away a little bit. Peter, of course, is in the boat. He's, he's doing the rowing, undoubtedly. And I just wonder how Peter feels about this. And he pushes out, and Jesus finishes preaching. And I just find it quite comical because when Jesus steps into your boat, he does it in a similar way. Notice the way in which he probes Peter's willingness by asking him a small thing before popping the big ask in the next verse. And in your lives, church, Jesus will often do this with you. He will test you in a variety of ways because discipleship starts with small acts of obedience that when done faithfully lead to greater opportunities to go deeper with the Lord. I want you to catch this. Discipleship starts with small acts of obedience. This was Peter's first chronicled act of obedience that he ever gave to Christ. And I guarantee you, being a rough-and-tumble, blue-collar man, he didn't like it. That's just my hunch. I can't back that up by the text. But I have a hunch that he just didn't really appreciate that his boat was being used for this purpose. Why not use James's boat? Why use my boat? I'm ready to go home. It's been a long night. But here Jesus tests him with a small act of obedience, and Peter's faithful with it. And many of us in our lives, I believe, are still in the shallows, the kiddie pool with the Lord, because we won't make him Lord of the small things in our lives. In discipleship, if you feel stuck, if you feel like you want to go deeper with the Lord, but you can't seem to get there, it's quite possible that it's because you have not been faithful in the little things he's already asked you to do. You have not been faithful with the little act of obedience that he's already commanded of you. He's already asked you to put out a little way. But you have revolted. You've kicked against him. And you said, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't have time for that. I don't have space for that act of obedience in my life. I'm tired. I'm busy. I don't have time to be there on a Sunday. I don't have time to get up early and spend time with you in the Word. I just, I'm too busy. I'm distracted, right? And look, we've all been there. But the Lord has asked each of us to do something. The Lord has asked each of us to put out a little way from the land. The goal is not to stay there, but that is a beginning. Perhaps some of you are in the beginning phase of discipleship where the Lord has asked you just a simple thing. Obey him. Trust him. If you want to go deeper with the Lord, you must be faithful in the little things. Make Jesus the Lord of the small things, and he will always be Lord of the big things. If we are faithful to do that which Christ has commanded, he will lead us into depths that we cannot imagine. But only he can get us there. We can't shove our belt further. We can't, with our own effort, kind of go deeper. We need to obey Christ and the things he's called us to do. So this leads us to our third point, 
or third characteristic that leads us into this next question that Jesus poses to Peter. And it's simply this, that discipleship is living by faith in the God who performs the impossible. Discipleship is living by faith in the God who performs the impossible. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this particular point. It's very convicting to me. As you consider, of course, now as we've read the story, you know that Jesus is about to kind of wind up. So he's finished speaking to the crowds. The crowds, I assume, are dismissed at this point. And Peter's probably thinking in his mind, great, I can go home, right? As I would be thinking, like, man, I'm glad this teaching session that was probably hours long ended. And, and no, Jesus turns to Peter, looks him in the eye, and says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this is a moment where you can hear a needle drop. Like, I just picture Peter just stunned. Here he is, like, bone-tired. He's already put out a little ways. He's already done the good deed of the day. He's finished. Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, put out into the deep, middle of the lake. And I just think that this, this awkward silence had to be there. This look of Christ, this, the, the, the eyes of Christ, I can picture it in my own mind, and I know this is a bit anecdotal and, and hypothetical, but I just picture Jesus looking at Peter with just this love in this calm, in this control that is unwavering. Like, like Peter doesn't really have an option. He thinks he does, but he doesn't really have an option because he's encountering something that he has never encountered before. And in discipleship, it's often that way with the Lord where we begin to be faithful, right? We begin to obey Jesus in these small ways, whatever it might be. They seem small to us. They seem like they're not really building the kingdom. They're not really building the staircase. Like, what is this small act of obedience going to do? We have a thousand feet to go, to go back to the staircase analogy. And Jesus asks you to do one thing, one rock at a time. And as you obey him, you begin to realize that Jesus isn't done with you. That's not all Jesus wants of you. And Peter is faced with this reality that Jesus wants him to put out into deep water. And Friends, this is the same call upon our lives. Jesus wants each of us to put out with him into the deep water. And the deep water means one thing to Peter, being a professional fisherman. It means uh, kind of where he already was on his own all night long. Peter was already out in the deeps fishing all night long, and that's why his, his response in verse 5 is telling, he's his master, we toiled all night. And took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. This is beautiful. Again, I can see Peter's mind exploding at this question, but this is exactly what Jesus just asked him. Peter initially puts up his objections, and many of us do the same thing when God calls us deeper in pursuing him, calls us deeper in ministry, calls us deeper in whatever faithful thing he's given us to do, he calls us to go deeper. And we say, Lord, but like I've already been there. I've tried that on my own. It did not work. We've fished all night. I've been out in my own strength trying to do this all night long, and it didn't work. You want me to go back out there? You want me to row halfway across the lake and drop the net? And, and perhaps this is your heart this morning. If you hear the Lord calling you to go deeper, you have all kinds of objections. You have all kinds of reasons quite plausible ones, very well thought out reasons why you can't obey Jesus. It's not going to work. Give up the fight. Trust Christ. 
obey his word. And this is where we get the other side of Peter. We get his initial reaction, which is so human. But then we get this gem of a reaction that is so precious and so unveiling of the kind of redemptive potential that I think Jesus saw in Peter. Because Peter, in spite of himself, in spite of how he undoubtedly felt, in spite of probably the cursing under his breath, he said, Lord, at your word, I will drop the nets. I will push off. And I just love that response because this should be our heart. This should be our heart like Peter who says, Lord, at your word, I will do what you ask. Because it's not my strength taking me out into the depths. If I get out in the deep on my own, I'm over my head, I'm going to drown. But if you call me deeper, at your word, I will obey you. If, like Peter finds out later on, if you call me out of the boat, at your word, I will come to you. But you must say, come, or else I'm drowning fast. And in our lives, God calls us deeper. He calls us to pursue him. He calls us to go after him. He calls us to follow him. And all of us in this room, I believe, want to go deeper with the Lord. We want to go deeper with the Lord this year. We don't want to stay in the shallows. We don't want to stay in the kiddie pool, but we have to obey Jesus. We have to put out a little bit further than we did before. We have to be faithful in the little things so that he can give us the next thing. And these are the principles of discipleship that it must require faith in the God who performs the impossible. So here he is discouraged, exhausted, defeated. And I think that there's a twofold application here, both for the disciple who has never gone into the depths with the Lord, and then perhaps for the disciple who has been walking with the Lord. Some of you in this room who have been faithfully following Jesus in the deeps for a long time. And maybe you have reached this season where I've often reached where you feel like you've been laboring all night. You've been toiling hard at this thing Christ has called you to do, and yet you've still come up empty. Your nets are still empty. You have fished. You have tried. You have preached. You have prayed. You have loved, and you have spent, and nothing has changed. And perhaps that is you today. And Jesus is yet again asking you to drop your net. And I think Jesus controls the catch. But if he's asked you to drop those nets one more time, trust him and do it. And we're going to see why that's important in a moment. So if you're in a season where you just want to hang up the nets and you just want to quit and you just want to like, not do it anymore and you have better things to do with your life, trust the Lord. Don't hang up those nets. Because at the 11th hour, Jesus is going to pull out a miracle. God is going to do something in your life. He's going to cause breakthrough that you don't see coming because you're at the edge of yourself. You're at the end of your strength. And Christ has called you to drop the nets one more time, to preach one more time, to pray one more time, to witness one more time, to love one more time, to show up one more time, to do the thing that you don't want to do. Christ has called you to do it. So where is Jesus asking you to put out into the deep and drop the nets? Church, obey him. You won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. You see, putting out into the deep <clears throat> is symbolic of trusting Jesus' word into the unknown, into the mystery, and laboring by faith. Peter had given it his best shot all night, but he had caught nothing. Yet this time would be different because he was at the end of himself and he had a willing heart. In church, Jesus doesn't require more than that. 
to do great things, but a willing heart to say, Lord, I'll obey you. I think many times we who have been following Jesus for a long time, we approach things like a professional Christian. You know, Peter's a professional fisherman, right? This is like his thing. Here's this rabbi telling him what to do. He's like, this is my thing, man. This is what I do for a living. Like, we've been there and done that. It's not working. And as Christians, we can get kind of really full of ourselves. And we start to think, well, like, I'm a professional Christian, man. Like, I've been around. I've seen things. I've done things. And now you're telling me to do it again? Like, it didn't work last time. Don't you see that? And we get really in a, in a, in a spot where our attitude tanks. But if we're going to fish in the way of Jesus... We must be willing to crucify our professionalism and obey Jesus. Crucify our I know better than Jesus and obey him. When his voice challenges our preconceived assumptions and feelings. Peter was indeed a professional, yet he was willing to trust the word of God over and above his experience and inclinations. And may we cultivate this year a same heart that says, I will do this one more time for the sake of Jesus. I will serve one more time. And not because we're giving God a limit. It's just a figure of speech to say, Lord, one more time. Today is all I have to give myself to you. And one more time, I will trust you and obey you. And maybe that's where you're at today. Where you are on your last legs in some capacity, some form of situation in life. And Jesus is saying, will you trust me to put out into the deep? Will you go out a little further? Will you quit? and rode to the shore and say, I'm done with this. And if that's your temptation, I just want to challenge you. Trust the Lord. Obey him. Put out into the deep. You won't be disappointed because what comes next is breakthrough. What comes next is something that you can't imagine. What comes next is a miracle that God is about to do. So the fourth principle, forgive me for getting emotional. It just means a lot to me. Disciples obey Jesus and experience breakthrough. Disciples obeyed Jesus and experienced breakthrough. In verse 6, I love this. When he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. I love this. Blows the whole situation up. I mean, blows it out of the water, you know, no pun intended. Here's Peter, right? I guarantee you this is a catch he's never had before. This is a haul. And all he does is obey Jesus. Probably like with just the last little vestige of like strength he has. Like, if this doesn't work, man, Jesus is going over the boat. I can just picture it in his head. He's like, Jesus is going in the water. I'm going home. This is it. He drops the nets and magic happens. Supernatural happens. Now, what happens really is their nets begin to break, right? They begin to catch more than they could ever imagine, more than they had capacity to catch. And what this is symbolic of to me is breakthrough. They begin to see that all that they had capacity for, Jesus just reinvented it. Jesus just took them beyond their capacity. Jesus just took them beyond what they could handle. Jesus took their nets and broke them. And this is so powerful to me because Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says that Jesus can do beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us by the Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus has just exceeded their expectations. And it's a wonderful turn of events because it's a moment of pure joy. It's a moment of shock. It's a moment of exhilaration. This is indeed the catch of a lifetime. Yet more than these men have ever experienced, what they are experiencing is the breakthrough of the barriers of their mind and breaking down the barriers of their heart. All of a sudden, this rabbi who they thought was probably a little crazy, all of a sudden reinvented their world and showed them something that they had never seen before. And Peter's about to get wrecked by it. Peter's about to become undone by it. And I think what it teaches us is that, again, as I already said, if you will obey Jesus to the very end, he will, he will do things in your life that you cannot imagine. He will produce breakthrough. He will expand your capacity. And that's why I love Psalm 119 in verse 25 through 32 where it says, David writes, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He says, My soul melts away for sorrow, but strengthen me according to your word, and put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. He says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. Church, let's choose the way of faithfulness. He says, I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I got to think, Peter's thinking this whole time, don't embarrass me. The entire shipping, fishing industry is going to mock me if this comes up short. But like the psalmist, he says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What this means is as you obey Jesus, church, as you run in the way of God's word, he will blow the boundaries of your heart. He will expand what you thought you could handle. He will expand your nets. He will break the barriers that you have presently in your life that tell you you can't go any deeper. You can't go any farther. You've capped out. This is all I can do. And I'm not saying to have unreasonable expectations of yourself. Romans says that we should judge ourselves rightly. We should not be inflated in our estimation of ourselves. But this is categorically different. We're not putting our dependence on ourselves. We're putting it in God. And we trust the Lord. The Lord will expand your heart, but you will only get an expanded heart as you obey and as you run, just like a runner who develops lungs for, for distance. This is what the psalmist is saying, that the only way to get more endurance is to run longer. The only way you're going to experience breakthrough by the power of God in your life, in your family, in your church, is to be faithful to the end, to run further than you did before. And this, this could quickly descend into, like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go harder. That's not what this is, church. If you want to go deeper with the Lord, you've got to obey the thing he already told you to do, and you've got to run the snot out of it. You've got to run that thing all the way to the end, run into the ground, be faithful with it. It's a fresh challenge to me. It's a fresh challenge to you to go deeper with the Lord, and the Lord will cause breakthrough. He will rupture the nets. And what happens here is that they signal to their partners who are <laughs> in the other boat. I don't know if they were on the land. The text doesn't really give us a description. Perhaps they all went out. Uh, but nonetheless, Peter's boat is the one that caught the fish because he was commanded to drop his nets. And it says that um, they signaled to their partners in verse 7 in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. 
I mean, this is just out of control, the situation here. It's like they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Now, fishermen in the ancient world were already scared of deep water. They thought that hell was underneath it. So that's why Peter was freaking out when he was drowning, and he cries out to Jesus as he walked to him on the water, like, save me. They had a kind of a superstitious understanding of what was below the water, um, like many fishermen do. But they had this ancient kind of uh, religious superstition that, that hell was beneath them. And in, in a literal sense, they weren't far from the truth. But uh, so, so this deep water idea, this concept was, was pretty scary, even to professional fishermen. Like they didn't want to be out there when there was a storm. They didn't want to be out there in the deeps when things went sideways. And here their boat is sinking because of the catch of fish. And this leads us to our fifth principle of discipleship. Not only that Christ will enlarge our hearts, Christ will cause breakthrough to happen as you obey him fully, but discipleship requires that you bring others into the mission and share with others the joys of obeying Jesus. Notice that when breakthrough happens in your life, you don't get to celebrate alone. You have to bring others with you. This is, the, this is the whole point. Jesus gave them such a breakthrough that they required help because their own boat was about to sink. And, and quite frankly, I pray that the Lord in his mercy would cause us as a church to have that kind of a breakthrough where our capacity is so enlarged that the help we presently have is not sufficient. That's our prayer pastorally that we don't have enough staff for the breakthrough that God wants to do. We don't have enough servants, as many servants are there, as there are in this room, and I want to commend you, we don't have enough help for the kind of stuff that Jesus wants to do in his church. Jesus wants to cause breakthrough, and that's going to require that we expand the borders of our heart, we expand the borders of our thinking, we expand the borders of our church, we expand the borders of our territory, and that we include others into the mission. And this has always been the heartbeat of this church, that we would have a vision larger than our own selves, that we'd have a vision larger than just the small kingdom that represents Rivertown Church, that we would see the global work of God, the regional work of God, and that we would link arms and say, Lord, we're building something beyond just the four walls of this building. But for that to happen, we have to have a vision, and we have to have a prayer that God would give us more help. We have to pray for laborers, because we want our boat to sink. We want to, and this isn't some name it and claim it thing. We want Jesus to do what he wants to do, whatever that is, however many fish that is, fish being symbolic of souls. But we want to be catching them. We want to be doing the work of an evangelist. We want to be dropping those nets by faith. Even if we pull up 99 out of 100 empty, every soul matters. We want to be faithful to drop the nets because when Jesus sends the fish, we want to be faithful to be there. We want to pray for help. We want to pray for laborers. You know, it may seem in a small church like this, we have three pastors by God's grace. We have other beautiful saints in the room who serve in a variety of capacities that, man, we're well stocked. And in a real sense, it's a great gift of God for a small church to have that many people, but we're not done. God's not done. That's not enough. We want to see people raised up. We want to see more and more lives enter the wonder of following Jesus. This is not sufficient, and I don't think God thinks it is either. But we have to obey him where we are. We have to be faithful to drop those nets. It's a fresh challenge to me to drop the nets. I've been living in New England all my life. It's a hard place. It's tough soil. 
people don't like the gospel, they don't respond well, they're not very interested in church. All these kinds of social dynamics that we encounter every single day of our lives. Um, doesn't matter. Drop those nets. Drop the net. Trust the Lord. He's in control of the catch, but we're responsible for obedience. And as we've often been exhorted in this church, let's be fishing. Let's be about our Father's business. Let's drop those nets. I love Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21, where it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Notice the collected nature of our comprehension. It's with all the saints that we comprehend. The breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And again, as I already mentioned, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think beyond what we can imagine. We have some big ideas in this room about what God could do. But beyond that, Beyond the nets we presently have, God is able to do beyond, abundantly more than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So we see that discipleship brings others into the mission and shares with others the joy of obeying Jesus. So the mission of the church is too large for one church to catch all the fish. We need the faithful, obedient body of Christ scattered all over Vermont to obey Jesus together and experience breakthrough. Yet all of this trickles down and starts with individuals, you and I today, deciding we're going to be part of that. We're going to be part of that plan. We're going to be part of that staircase. We're going to be living stones that Jesus can set in the ground that don't move, that stay steadfast, that drop those nets at his word and trust him for the results. We're going to be those kinds of people. And by God's grace, according to his precious promises, we will experience breakthrough. So our sixth principle here, and I love this because this is where it gets real personal with Peter in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is why I think Peter wasn't too keen on this initial act of obedience. I think the whole time he was living in probably a state of unbelief, probably like often we do, a state of, man, this really isn't going to work. We've been here and done this. Like, how long have I been fishing? This isn't going to work. What what, what a joke. What a joke. Like, we've been out all night, and you drop the nets. And I think that so often, like, we have the same attitude. And when we encounter God's grace, we fall at his feet. We realize we are unworthy servants, but he is worthy. For all my toil, for all my labor, for all my doing good for Jesus, at the end of the day, I'm an unworthy servant. He is worthy. Anything he does is because of his own glory and his own grace. And this is what Peter realizes, and this is what I think is so beautiful for us to remember as we are pursuing the Lord this year and as we're pursuing these qualities of discipleship, that disciples live in the wonder of, of the grace of Christ, 
and recognize all effectiveness flows from Jesus and not themselves. Disciples live in the wonder of the grace of Christ. Have you lost your wonder of the grace of Christ this morning? Guarantee you is connected to your fishing. I have had seasons in my life where I have lost the wonder of following Jesus, where it's become old hat, become just what I do, become like, well, what else, do I, what else am I going to do? I was like, this is my life. Really sad that we have lost the wonder so often of the grace of God upon our lives that confronts us in moments like this and reminds us that this is all because of Jesus. This isn't because of you being such a good servant. Yes, you put out. Yes, you obeyed. God honors those things. Yes, you drop the nets. Well done. But it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of grace. It's all because God asked you to put out. This wasn't your bright idea. And I think we just need to be reminded that it wasn't our bright idea to serve Jesus with our lives. It was Jesus's. And he called us into it. And he's not going to let us go. He's not going to fail us. He's not going to disappoint us. Life will disappoint us. People will disappoint us. Circumstances will disappoint us. Jesus will not. All who hope in him will not be disappointed, Hebrews says. So live in the wonder of grace. What an awestruck man Peter was. Yet more than anything, he is confronted with transcendent worthiness. And he sees himself in the glorious light of Christ. And this results always in prostrate worship. Like Isaiah, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips falling at his feet, saying the only hope I have is grace. The only qualification we have in this room, all of us, for being ministers of the new covenant is the grace of Christ. It is the grace of Jesus that gives me the privilege of even being able to do this this morning for you. It is the grace of Christ that has led you into this room today. It is the grace of Christ that compels you to want to serve him in the ways that many of you do, and, and probably all of you in ways I can't even know to love your family, to witness at work, to pursue him in the morning. It's the grace of Christ that is at work within you, Philippians 2 says, to work, it's working within you to work out of you this great salvation with fear and trembling. So we have this grace of Christ that we must not forget is the anchor point for our calling as disciples. And we don't want to lose the wonder of following Jesus. And it's so easy to. The enemy will come at us in so many ways through the toil of our lives and the hardship and the disappointment of fishing all night and not catching anything to say, is it really worth it? Is this really worth it? I mean, you could do better things with your life. Don't listen to that. It's always worth it to follow Jesus. As we sang this morning, to trust and obey, for there is indeed no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So he falls down at the Lord's feet. We owe it all to him. We must be reminded constantly that his grace is sufficient for us as ministers of the new covenant. And I think that many people stop short of going deep with Christ because they are actually genuinely afraid of what Jesus will find in them. Many people, I've talked to people who have literally told me, I don't want to serve. I don't want to step out of my sphere because I'm afraid what Jesus will find in me. Sure. Jesus will find something you don't like. That's the way it goes. Okay? I've been walking with Jesus a long time, almost a quarter of a century, and the longer I go down the road, the more I find out about myself that I don't like. So welcome to the club. 
Jesus is not scared of it. He's not intimidated by what he's going to find in you as you serve him. He's not like, oh, I didn't see that coming. You're such, a, you're such a jerk. Jesus is not like that. Now, he will deal with it. He will call you to repentance. He will not leave you the same person. But if you're afraid to serve Jesus because of what will be exposed in you, you're not going to get very far down the road. Peter finds out that he's naked before God, spiritually speaking. He finds out that he's undone. But what does Jesus say to him? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Peter had every reason to be afraid because of all the things that I guarantee you he was thinking and saying all the way out to the middle of that lake. And then as soon as everything got flipped on its head, he realized, oh, my goodness, I am a sinner. And not only that, but he begins to see who Christ actually is. He begins to see transcendent worthiness. And no longer is the word master employed, but the term Lord is employed because he realizes who's in the boat. It's no longer the captain of his own ship. Jesus just flipped the script. He's the Lord now. And what's going to happen next is even more radical. He's going to leave it all behind and follow this Lord with his life. So what we see here is do not be afraid. needs to come to some of us today who are afraid to take a little step deeper with the Lord, who are afraid to take the next step in discipleship. We're afraid to do the next thing God's called us to do, whatever it might be. I mean, the situations are diverse, but the Lord would come to you and say, don't be afraid, because from now on, you're going to be catching men. If you want to be a disciple that makes other disciples, you're going to have to let Jesus expose you. You're going to have to take the risk. You're going to have to do the thing that's scary, and you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to take that boat to the middle of that lake and drop that net, because Jesus called you to do it. But if you do it, he will be with you. So have you lost the wonder of following Jesus? If so, run to his feet and worship him. Let the wonder of grace and the holiness of Jesus revive your heart and calm your fears. And in closing, the seventh principle is that disciples make other disciples by following Jesus and entrusting all to him. Disciples make other disciples by following Jesus and entrusting all to him. It says in verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. The word astonished literally means wonder. They were just befuddled, completely turned upside down. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What is the character and trajectory of your life? Is your life one where you can say to others, follow me as I'm following Christ? Jesus is making followers who fish for other men and other women. He's making the kind of people who can call other people to the Lord, not to themselves, but to Christ. This is the kind of work he's doing in all of us. He's making us the kind of people that can say to lost souls, this is Christ, follow him. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your life. He will deal with your sin. He will atone for your sin. This is the Lord. Follow him as I follow him. And I'm going to quote Al Whittinghill, who, if you don't know, that's Pastor Ben's father. Uh, he gave a line some time ago that I, that I heard that kind of messed with me for a long time. Uh, it's, it's very convicting. He says, the fruit of following is fishing. The fruit of following is fishing. 
And Ben, hopefully I'm quoting him right. But I think that this is really convicting because if we're fishing, it's because we're following. And I love that. And I think in our lives, we need to have the same trajectory. So how is your fishing game going? What is the character of your life? Are you able to be about the Father's business? Or are your nets clean and baking in the sun? Are they put out of service? Are you chilling out on the, on the beach? Or are you going deep with the Lord? And are they dropping at the command of Christ? So they leave all, they entrust all to him, and they follow him. And I want to close here in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Because as we consider this statement of following Christ, we consider the wonder it is to follow the Lord Jesus. I was reminded of two individuals in the Old Testament that many of us will be familiar with, Joshua and Caleb. And in closing, I find it striking that Caleb and Joshua were a man that the Bible describes as having followed the Lord wholly, in contrast to the entire generation they grew up with who rebelled against the Lord. And, and as a consequence, God comes to, uh, speaks through Moses to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34. And it says, The Lord heard your words and was angered, speaking of the people. And he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him, to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden. Because he has, notice this, wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry, Moses says, on your account, because he struck the rock, and you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. God says of these two men, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua is symbolic of Christ. He goes where the old covenant can't. Moses is the old covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. He takes his church in through the new covenant. We inherit the land through the grace and power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel, and we live as ministers of the new covenant. But Caleb, I believe, is descriptive of his church. We should be like Caleb. We should have men with the spirit of Caleb who says, though all around me apostatize, though all around me fall away and, and live in unbelief, I will follow the Lord wholly. I will follow after him. I will chase after him. I will obey him. I will go deep with him. And I will continue to drop those nets. So this morning, church, may we follow the Lord. If you forget all these principles of discipleship, just take this with you. Follow the Lord with a whole heart today and drop those nets and trust him with the results. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that in your mercy and in your grace that as you've challenged me in just preaching this message that you would let it be true of each of us, that we would be anchored in your truth, undergirded by the word of God, that we would be these kind of men in women that you are calling us to be, that we would be indeed fishers of men. And like Caleb, that we would have a spirit of faith that says we're not going to live in unbelief. We're not going to live in rebellion. We're not going to live in the shallows. We're going to go deep with the Lord. We're going to trust him. 
no matter the cost. Lord, let this be true of us. Let us not go another year staying in the shallows. Let us go out into the deeps and by your grace accomplish all that is in your heart and make us worthy servants along the way. In Jesus' name, amen.